previously on Breakdown. This is the tough thing. It is only germane to intent. If you can show that at the time, the evidence was so overwhelming that the election had not been stolen at that time, that he knew, not even that he has to have known that what he was saying wasn't true, that he in fact knew that the election had not been stolen, but he said it anyway. It was politically important because the special grand jury went out of their way to say that the 23 of them decided unanimously that there was no evidence of sufficiently widespread fraud in Georgia. I really think that that was a knife thrust into the heart of Trump's election denialism. We need to be very cautious. This is not a game. It's criminal justice. It's prosecution. It's the power of the state to deprive people of, of liberty, right, if, if they're convicted. And, and so it's important that we get this right and that we search for truth, which means being patient. After the special purpose grand jury was dissolved in January, we had been hoping to find one of the jurors on that panel. Well, our friend Kate Brumbeck from Associated Press tracked down its forewoman. After Brumbeck published a story on the forewoman's insights, a great scoop I might add, we tracked her down too. But man, we weren't expecting someone so young, forthcoming, and, well, expressive. The forewoman is Emily Kors, a 30-year-old former Joanne Fabrics employee who says she's never voted. She spoke to us for over an hour between drags on a red vape. Kors was expectedly nervous and excited to talk about her experience. In front of her, she kept a vinyl notebook with all of her notes on what Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney said was off-limits to talk about. The biggest off-limits topic? Jurors' deliberations. She referred to those notes constantly during our 90-minute interview. Let that soak in for a second. For the last eight months, one of the most secretly consequential people in Georgia was a quirky millennial with a sheet of long brown hair who had been given the freedom to ask questions to some of the most powerful political figures in America. That's our judicial system at work. No kidding. What Coors told us and then subsequently said on CNN, NBC, and other news outlets was really interesting and revealing. And it also led to her being strongly criticized by national legal commentators, vilified across the internet, and even spoofed on Saturday Night Live. Coors was also rebuked by former President Donald Trump himself, as well as his Georgia lawyers, who said she had disgraced the sanctity of the grand jury process and prejudiced the case. We'll talk more about that a little later. We even heard from Judge McBurney himself on what a special grand juror can and cannot say. Stay tuned. Significantly, during the interview, Coors tells us the special grand jury is recommending multiple people to be indicted. It's not a short list. This is episode 26, The Four Women Emerges, of season nine of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see 
do and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. After the AP published a story on the morning of February 21st, Tamar reached out to Coors. She agreed to sit down with us for an interview at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution offices early that afternoon. She had already received an avalanche of invitations from news media outlets like ours. A CNN producer had even left her a handwritten note, requesting an interview at her home that morning. Coors appeared happy to be receiving all the attention and starstruck by the A-list TV hosts who were requesting interviews. She was extremely enthusiastic and proud of the work she and her fellow grand jurors had done. She made it clear she was speaking only for herself. And she even said this. I told my boyfriend at one point during proceeding, during all this, uh, I came home and I told him, do you know that if I was in a room with Donald Trump and Joseph Biden, and they knew who I was, they would both want to speak to me. Me. Welcome back to Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution covering Georgia's most important cases. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Here's what we learned about Emily Kors. She grew up in the metro Atlanta area. She's worked in customer service and retail for most of her life. And she just left a job when she received her grand jury summons in February of last year. I was excited because I've never gotten called for jury duty before. This is the first time I ever got called. And then it was this. Um, But so this is the first time I got called. So I was excited because I I thought it was cool. And then it's a grand jury. So I was like, ooh, I don't even have to do a regular jury. I get to be like something cool and do like a grand jury thing. And I thought it was a regular grand jury though. Um, And then when I was getting ready to go, my mom's calling me going, you know, the courthouse is blocked off, right? You know, there are like streets with cops and you know, something huge is going on, right? And I was like, okay, it's, it's jury duty. Mom, what do you want from me? Coors was named grand juror number three which all but guaranteed she'd be picked unless she had some hardship or conflict that required her to be excused. Then she was taken to the large courtroom presided over by Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney. One of the first things the judge said to us in the room was what what our main question would be that we would discuss, which was whether or not there was interference in the 2020 presidential election in the state of Georgia. That's exactly how he phrased it. He was very particular about it, which I appreciate. It was not about any particular person. It was about the issue, which I approve of. Um, But yeah, he said that. And I really wanted to be like, can I volunteer? Like, can I please do this? Like, please pick me. Pretty please. Um, It turned out he essentially picked the first, like, 23 of us to say we didn't have a conflict. Coors says she had not followed much of the 2020 presidential election and its aftermath. Her thoughts instead were focused on the pandemic and masks and fabric and her job. So I missed all of this, which means that when they started talking about it being an issue, I was like, 
oh, cool, I really hope I'm picked because I can go into this with a really open mind. And I can genuinely make sure people get their fair hearing. Because I really genuinely, like, feel really strongly about that, that, that I can think whatever I want about your politics in private, but in a court, when it comes to the law, everybody deserves their fair hearing. And I, like, felt really strongly about that. And I was like, I love that I can do that, that I haven't made any decisions because I have no idea what we're talking about yet. She explains why being between jobs made her a good fit for serving. So it seemed like it made sense to wait until I figured out what jury duty was going on to start looking for a new job. And then jury duty turned out to be three days a week for eight months. It's part of the reason I kind of volunteered to be four person because I knew that for a lot of people this would be really difficult to schedule around work and everything else. And I knew that I had the time to volunteer, and so I was willing to do that. Plus, I think it's really cool. Cora sat up front close to all the witnesses and was the person who swore them in. We asked her who the most memorable witnesses were. I mean, Mr. Giuliani, for sure, was a very memorable, memorable person. He is a character. He is larger than life, and it is fantastic. And it's really cool to sit, like, this far from him. I was this far from everyone. I was this far from the governor. I was this far from Mr. Julie. Like, this was really cool. And I told, I mentioned earlier, I got to swear everybody in. So to be able to have that, like, 60 seconds of standing there and being like, will you raise your right hand for me? And swearing people in was, is a really neat moment of eye contact and of, like, actual person to person, which I thought was really cool. Coors makes another observation about the former New York mayor and lawyer for Trump, whom prosecutors labeled an investigation target. We asked him his, uh, his educational history. Like, give us a bit about your background. Man starts with, like, nursery school. That's what I mean. Like, I go to swear him in, right? And I asked him the question. And I'm like, uh, so help you God. And he goes, I do. And I'm like, what, what was that face? I don't even know how to handle that face. Like, what even was that? It was just fantastic. Course says Giuliani answered some questions, but not all questions. Every time he took the fifth or he cited attorney-client privilege, he thought about it. Like, he considered it. And he was like, I think I'm going to have to take the fifth. Or like, I believe that's attorney-client or whatever. And I just... Appreciate that. Cora says a number of witnesses, probably fewer than a dozen, pleaded the fifth, invoking their right not to say anything that might incriminate themselves. She says one memorable one was Atlanta lawyer Ray Smith III, one of a number of lawyers who filed lawsuits on Trump's behalf challenging the 2020 election. She says Smith pled the fifth even when they asked him his name. Just the fifth, the fifth, the fifth, the fifth, the fifth. I think, I don't remember who it was who did this, but I know that the most somebody ever pled the fifth for us was like 73 times. I can at least tell you for sure that Ray Smith and Jenna Ellis both came in and just nothing. Jenna Ellis did it with a smile. Jenna Ellis is a Colorado attorney who advised the Trump campaign on strategies for overturning Democrat Joe Biden's wins in Georgia and other swing states. She also spoke at a state legislative committee hearing following the election. 
Corris also says former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows invoked his Fifth Amendment right. So did John Eastman, Trump's former election law attorney and an architect of the alternate GOP electors. Uh, Professor Eastman was very nice. Yes, he was very interesting to talk to. There were things he would talk about and there were things he wouldn't talk about. Um, But he was... I have no problem with anyone pleading the fifth or saying privilege or anything. That's totally allowed and that's their right and you should do it and points to you for doing it. It's just that I loved these witnesses who would have a conversation with us. Even when they cited, ended up with privilege or the fifth or whatever, who would have a conversation with us regardless. And that was, that was Professor Eastman. Was, yeah, there were a lot of things he wouldn't say. But when I asked him about the Fifth Amendment, and like what it meant, like in his experience as a constitutional law professor, he talked to me about it. And like, I appreciate that. I appreciate anybody who will come in and have the conversation and then cite privilege. That's fine. That's great. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp was also called to the special grand jury because of a phone call Trump made to him. The president asked Kemp to convene a special session of the General Assembly that would declare Trump the winner of Georgia, but Kemp refused. And Kemp wound up fighting to quash his subpoena, although Judge McMurney ruled he had to testify, but only after the gubernatorial election. Here's Cora's assessment of his appearance. I'm sure it was partially being exhausted from the campaign and everything else, but we were just not high on his priority list. Cora's was taken by David Ralston, the late Speaker of the House of Representatives who died last November, months after he testified. He was wonderful. He was the funniest man. He was such a funny man. Uh, he, uh, when I swore him in, he told me that it was the first time in 60 years he had said, I do to a woman other than his wife. That sounds like him. <laughs> and I just about died. Like I was so red, I couldn't handle it. Oh, but he was, he was very funny. Um, at one point, uh, I remember somebody asking him about like the, spe- like what would have happened if there had been a special session. And, he, he straight up just looked back at us and was like, I don't know. It would have been bad. She also says this happened when she swore him in. And I think one time there was, oh, one time they did have like an ice cream day at the DA's office. And they let us all go get like the popsicles. It was like the old school popsicles. I got like a Ninja Turtle popsicle. It was awesome. And then I swore in Speaker Ralston still holding my popsicle. Cora says the special grand jury watched some of the January 6th committee testimony. We watched um, a bunch of the January 6th testimony. Um, I believe those were some other, some of those were witnesses we saw in person, like some of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony we watched with Cassidy Hutchinson and some of like other people's testimony about Professor Eastman we watched with Professor Eastman. She says this about Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to Mark Meadows, who told the January 6th committee she heard Trump acknowledging he had lost the election. Cassidy Hutchinson was lovely. She was great. She was Honestly, prepared to give way more testimony than we needed, like in terms of hours. I think she told us that she and her lawyer had figured it out and she had given like 200 hours of testimony or something like that before the, yeah, before Jan 6. And so like, we were like getting tired at the end of that day. And she's like, oh, are we done? Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. And I'm like, man, girl, you just, Cassidy Hutchinson was another one that I believe very firmly 
respected the Constitution and the law. And she very strongly believed that what she, what she did should match the Constitution and the law. And she just wanted the two things to line up. And that's where that argument, like, stops right there. Is, and I, like, really respect her as a person. She also made me feel really bad about myself because she's, like, 26 or something. And, like, oh, my God. Coras also got to hear from Fulton County poll workers Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shay Moss, both of whom received threats after Giuliani falsely told state legislative committees they manufactured votes for Biden. Comments like this one. Did that woman look at her taking those ballots out? Look at them scurrying around with the ballots. Nobody in the room, hiding around. They look like this. They look like they're passing out dope. I gave both of them a piece of chocolate because I felt bad. So I slid both of them like a piece of dove chocolate over the thing. Um, but they were, they were lovely. They were very nice people. And they honestly were really helpful because have you watched that State Farm Arena video? It is so hard to tell what's happening. Like the first like 10 times you watch it, you're like, what is this? This is just a bunch of boxes and people and boxes and people. I don't understand. So being able to talk to the people who are in the room and have them be like, okay, this is this, that was actually really nice, considering the amount of time we ended up spending discussing the State Farm Arena video. Coors also reveals that the DA's office had worked out immunity deals with some of the witnesses. A handful? Less than a dozen. Some people who, mostly people who ended up being um, very much confirming things we knew, um, ended up with immunity. In a couple cases, in a couple cases, it almost seemed like, like we're given immunity and because they were worried and then they didn't end up really needing it. You know what I mean? Um, no, it was not. There were no dramatic plot twists when it came to the immunity. Do you know what I mean? There was no like, oh, my God, the big reveal. No, it wasn't quite that level. It was some of our foundational supporting cast of characters. Just ahead, why the special purpose grand jury never subpoenaed Donald Trump, and what Trump's Georgia attorneys are saying after Coors media appearances. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Emily Kors sketched portraits of many of the special grand jury witnesses on her notepad. After the special grand jury was dissolved, the DA's office shredded the grand juror's notes. They let Kors keep two pages of drawings because they didn't have any notes on them. She brought them to the interview. There was one of Mark Short, a top aide to former Vice President Mike Pence. Great. Nice guy. He confirmed a lot of things that we thought. He knew a lot of things that we thought, whereas... Like, but he didn't show up and, and break ground. You know what I mean? Like, 
She also brought a drawing of Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who had fought his appearance all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Cora says Graham was charming, and she was surprised he answered questions after his long, hard fight not to appear. It was fascinating to be like, really, you of all people are going to come in here and be like, willing to speak to us? One thing that surprised us about the investigation is that the special grand jury never subpoenaed Trump or asked him to appear voluntarily to give him the chance to tell his side of the story. Here's Coors saying why she didn't think it was necessary. It was a battle we did not choose to fight. And there were some people who we were very determined on fighting to get in front of us. And I think, especially as we got closer to the end of it, and we talked to some of these more high-profile people who did nothing but plead the fifth for hours, it became a point where, like, I know I wasn't going to push it. Because, like, do I want him in front of us? Yes, absolutely. But, like, no, I didn't think that he would give, like, groundbreaking testimony. He wasn't going to. The DA, of course, launched the criminal investigation after Trump called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. The audio of that call was quickly leaked to the press. We also knew about another recorded call Trump placed to Frances Watson, then an investigator in Raffensperger's office. She was auditing absentee ballots in Cobb County. Cora says there are more recordings of Trump on the phone than have been made public. We listened to a lot of recordings. We heard a lot of recordings of President Trump on the phone. It is amazing how many hours of footage you can find of that man on the phone. Um, I know at several points in the investigation, we were privileged to have access to recordings that were not necessarily mainstream released in the news. Um, Some of these that were privately recorded by people or recorded by a staffer um, and later known about. Uh, There were several of those that we got to be the people who heard that. And that was, that was a really cool moment. Toward the end of the interview, we had to ask Coors if the special grand jury was recommending indictments. We were already quite confident that it was, based on language in the released portions of the report and from Judge McBurney's order. But we wanted to hear what she had to say. Without naming names, here's Coors' answer. It's not a short list. You're not going to be shocked. It's not rocket science. Like, it's... <laughs> I wonder who could possibly be on this list. You know, it's, it's not rocket science, y'all. Like, there, there may be parts of it that you did not expect, but I don't believe that the season finale will have any major plot twists. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I can't tell you because I can't tell you, but it's, I wonder who could possibly be there. Hmm. We asked her if the special grand jury recommended broad charges like RICO or conspiracy or more narrow charges. I'm not going to say that. Simply because I... Yeah, I'm just not going to say that. I'm not going to go there. I will tell you, like I said, it's not a short list. A longer list suggests that conspiracy or RICO recommendations are quite possible. Before we wrapped up our interview... 
We asked Coors if she'd seen Trump's post on his social media platform, Truth Social. He wrote, quote, Thank you to the special grand jury and the great state of Georgia for your patriotism and courage. Total exoneration. When Cora saw that, her eyes bugged out. She began laughing, putting her hand over her mouth, and then rolled her eyes. Did he really say that? Oh, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. I love it. Anything you want to say about that? I'm going to invoke my Fifth Amendment right. (laughs) That's what I have to say to that. About 24 hours after Emily Kors made the rounds, we got a call from Drew Finling. He's the defense attorney who leads Trump's Georgia legal team. He asked Bill and me to come to his office an hour later. So both of us rushed over, trying to beat the awful Atlanta rush hour traffic. Finling's office, by the way, is something to behold. Hanging over his lobby are three large portraits painted by Atlanta artist Steve Penley. Two are of progressive U.S. Supreme Court icons Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The other is of President John Adams, who as a defense attorney represented British soldiers after the Boston Massacre of 1770 because he believed every person should have the right to counsel. The furniture is white leather and marble and guests can flip through coffee table books about hip-hop jewelry and the fashion designer Tom Ford. Findling is known for representing rap artists, after all, and he has the hashtag Billion Dollar Lawyer on his Instagram account. Finling and his co-counsel Jennifer Little wanted to do their first on-the-record interview about the investigation since being retained by the former president six months ago. They told us they'd long had misgivings about the way D.A. Fonnie Willis had run the inquiry, but they'd been intent on sitting on the sidelines because prosecutors had never gotten in touch either to request a voluntary interview with Trump or to issue a subpoena. But now they feel compelled to speak up after Emily Kors came forward, and they didn't mince words. Here's Finling. The lens that was presented to us um, was that over the lens of unprofessionalism. And in fact, our suspicions of a circus were proven to be true. Um, We heard... about um, about uh, ice cream parties. We heard about swearing people under oath, um, holding uh, Ninja Turtle popsicles. Um, and uh, we, we heard about um, the racing up to a, to a uh, identified target, a major political figure that's identified as a target and excitedly shaking their hand. The public should know that whether you call this a special purpose grand jury or not, this is not the way that a grand jury is supposed to operate. Um, and, and so this type of, of, of carnival, clown-like atmosphere that was portrayed um, over the course of the last 36 hours takes away from the complete uh, sanctity and the integrity, and for that matter, the reliability. Um, we are now called into question um, how this really took place. Findling and Little say Coors' informality shows that jurors and Fulton prosecutors were overly chummy during the investigation, and they are particularly critical of the decision to allow jurors to read press coverage of the probe as it was unfolding although there is no prohibition against that. 
They apparently knew what was going on on the outside. That's really not the role of a grand juror to know what's happening outside of their body. We know apparently they were allowed to, albeit as the, the foreperson said, they uh, were allowed to read newspapers, watch news stories. They're reading Bill Rankin to Mars articles and bringing them in apparently to the grand jury room. That is unheard of. And that again takes away the reliability of this grand jury and the results of this grand jury. They say Cora's comments about witnesses who pleaded their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination were improper. I mean, the fact that a grand juror would leave and had not been properly educated as to the, the sanctity again and the importance of the Fifth Amendment in our United States Constitution and in our Georgia Constitution is, is really shocking to the legal conscience. Although we need to point out to you what you heard Coors say earlier during our interview. I have no problem with anyone pleading the fifth or saying privilege or anything. That's totally allowed and that's their right and you should do it and points to you for doing it. Little says Coors crossed the lines that bar jurors from discussing grand jury deliberations. The fact that they were bringing in news articles and discussing them amongst the grand jurors, that they were reading them together. Um, they, she, just, she mentioned the discussions and who they chose to call and why. She mentioned whose names were brought up a lot, what they listened to, what evidence they found to be credible, what witnesses they liked, what witnesses they felt didn't take long enough or weren't thoughtful enough. Those are deliberations. The decision to recommend indictments, that is directly a result of their deliberations. So while she didn't say, grand juror so-and-so said this and I then responded that, these are all touching upon the deliberations that took place in this grand jury. And whether she just touched upon it or she went beyond it, that's not what you do. That's not what you allow. Why is this happening? We've never seen it before. And why is this happening in a case of this significance when the entire country is watching? It's an embarrassment. Little and Finling laid Cora's comments right at the feet of D.A. Willis. It starts from the top, and this is an atmosphere that was cultivated. And it was cultivated by a district attorney who from day one was giving interviews and a district attorney's office that was from day one giving interviews, um, speaking to the media, posting, utilizing this in a way that typically we do not see. They shared a political cartoon tweeted by Willis's campaign account last summer that plays off of comments made by investigation witness Lindsey Graham. He said that Willis was going on a fishing expedition for his testimony. The cartoon depicts Willis as a fisherwoman reeling in a buffend version of Senator Graham. Another fish in the green water says, I know you'll do the right thing for the swamp, Lindsay. Little and Finling also surfaced other tweets of Willis exclaiming how her number of online followers had grown. The look of that, the atmosphere, the tone you are setting matters. 
you are handling a sensitive, significant investigation that this country cares about. And you are setting a tone that people are watching. And your grand jurors, what we've seen now demonstrates that the grand jurors sensed that and were likewise informal and didn't appear in their comments to understand the gravity of the situation and what the investigation was all about. We reached out to the DA's office for comment, by the way, but Willis declined to respond. Ditto for Coors. Willis's spokesman did say that the DA had not been aware in advance that Coors was planning to speak to the media. We asked the attorneys to weigh in on some rumors that had been swirling in the preceding hours. That is, that the Trump team or lawyers representing Republican witnesses may file court motions in response to Coors' interviews. That could mean a motion to quash a potential indictment either before or after it is obtained. This team is considering a wide variety of potential motions. Whether or not it's when the timing of those take place is to be determined. Um, But we're on top of every conceivable legal issue that's involved in this case. Everything's up for consideration right now. Their comments came a few hours after Trump himself took to his social media platform, Truth Social, to condemn Core's comments. He said, quote, This Georgia case is ridiculous, a strictly political continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Now you have an extremely energetic young woman, the, get this, foreperson of the racist DA's special grand jury, going around and doing a media tour revealing, incredibly, the grand jury's inner workings and thoughts. This is not justice. This is an illegal kangaroo court. Atlanta is leading the nation in murder and other violent crimes. All I did is make two perfect phone calls. Expect a lot of this kind of messaging from him in the weeks and months ahead. Trump's rhetoric, along with those of Finling and Little, are certainly signaling a new, more combative stance as this investigation enters a new phase. One thing that was particularly clear? Just how steadfast Finling and Little were in their sentiment that Trump did nothing wrong. And by the way, let's be really clear about one thing. We think it would be a travesty um, for there to be criminal charges in this case because we are resolute in the fact that our client is completely innocent. Later that night, I talked to Judge Robert McBurney, whose job it has been to oversee the special grand jury. He wasn't going to talk about the tempest that had erupted following the airing of Coors' interviews, but he wanted to set the record straight on what jurors like Coors are and are not allowed to say publicly about their work. And it's okay for him to do that. Judges can talk about legal procedure. Judge McBurney starts off referring to himself in the third person. So the judge who supervised the special purpose grand jury did meet with the grand jurors um, at the end of their service to explain to them what the law allows them to discuss um, with anyone, not just the media, and what the law, and in particular their oath, um, prohibits them from discussing. And um, it's, it's in, in one way, very clear. They cannot discuss their deliberations, and that's it. But what exactly are deliberations? I explained that 
Um, that would be the discussions they had amongst themselves when it was just the grand jurors in the room. No assistant DA in the room, no witness in the room. When they were discussing, what do we do with what we've learned? What are our impressions of this witness or that witness? If it was discussed, that's not anything they can um, share with anything else. Um, but if there's a lawyer in the room, there's a witness in the room, what's going on there? That's not deliberations. That's presentation. And they're not prohibited from talking about that. Nor are they prohibited from talking about the fruit of their deliberation, which would be the final report. So is it correct to say, Bill, that Judge McBurney is implying that Coors did nothing wrong? It looks like it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that what Coors disclosed is what he'd recommend, especially in terms of jurors putting their identities out there and leaving themselves open, as she did, to threats and ridicule. It also seems clear that many of the legal commentators who condemned Coors for what she said don't know Georgia law. One thing that's clear once again is just how protective Judge McBurney is of this special grand jury, given the sensitive nature of the issue at hand. And he's also spot on about the law. If you recall, in episode 23, we covered the hearing over whether the special purpose grand jury's final report could be released. It became clear that the secrecy requirements for Georgia grand juries are far, far less stringent than, say, those of federal grand juries. This was hit home in a 2017 opinion released by the Georgia Supreme Court. It said the state General Assembly had curtailed the secrecy afforded to Georgia grand juries with the exception of its deliberations. The state high court said, The oath of secrecy no longer extends to the state attorney, and even the juror's oath encompasses only deliberations and not all things occurring in the grand jury room. This court opinion was cited in a February 24th filing by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and other media outlets before the Georgia Supreme Court. They're asking the court to hear an expedited appeal of Judge McBurney's order sealing much of the final report. We'll let you know how that goes. Of course, we're hoping the state Supreme Court hears the appeal and quickly rules that the final report should be made public. Absolutely, we do. Before we leave, just a few more thoughts on Emily Kors. I found her to be a person of her own mind, someone who's not shy about letting you know exactly how she feels. A lot of people are criticizing her for how she appeared on her TV appearances. But I can only imagine how nervous she must have been, all the while trying to walk a tightrope and not say something McBurney said she couldn't say. I felt like she came off pretty genuine. She was clearly super jazzed about getting to serve and was eager to share her experience. I can only imagine the things on a juror's chest after hearing eight months of evidence in one of the most high-profile investigations in the country and not being able to talk about it for so long. It's been distressing seeing what many people have been writing about her on social media. I mean, some of it is really beyond the pale. It sure can be a cruel, cruel world out there. And to people who talk about any prejudice that resulted from what she said, consider the 600-page report by the January 6th committee and its publicly filed criminal referrals. Or what will likely be a nationally televised press conference when DA Fonnie Willis announces her potential indictments. For sure. This may end up being little more than a footnote in this case. The danger is whether this undermines public confidence in what ultimately comes out of this inquiry. 
And I know we've heard a lot about the sanctity of the grand jury process and how important it is not to divulge certain information. But under Georgia law, DA Fonnie Willis and her prosecutors could come out and say what they want about what went on in the special grand jury room. Witnesses can talk about it. The special grand jurors can too, except just not their deliberations. And that, of course, includes Emily Kors. We'll give her the last word. Here's what Kors said when we asked how she felt about all she'd learned during the investigation. How in my heart I feel? I feel like this was really cool, but it shouldn't have needed to happen. Like, I'm glad it did. It was really cool for me, but it shouldn't have needed to happen. And it shouldn't have been so complicated. And it just was complicated. It just had all these extra alleys and all these extra twists and turns that it didn't need. And and I'm trying to talk, too, without quite going into, you know details of this and that or this person said or whatever because I'm really trying to like respect people's privacy and and the information I don't want to ruin anybody's case or what although when they send target letters how can I ruin their case but that's not the point but like there were just there's too much going on in this whole thing and the more we got into it the more at least I realized there was way too much going on and this should not have been this insane some of it was perfectly valid and should have been valid. And, and even some of, the, some of the people that are publicly thought of as like being wrong in this situation, I think have some valid points. I think there were points on every side. It's just that why, was, why were there 75 people we needed to talk to? How on earth could there have been 75 people we needed to talk to? As always, thanks so very much for listening. We'll be back soon. Breakdown sound engineer is Shane Backler. Our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson. Our editors, Jennifer Brett, Dan Kleppel, and Shannon McCaffrey. Our managing editor, Leroy Chapman. And Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.